0: Today's show, I'd like to share a few
1: words from my friend, Dr. Aaron Wiseman. Hey there, this is Dr. Aaron Wiseman. I'm a fellow Doctor Podcast Network member, life coach, and mama three. I kick butt, I take names, and I help other high-achieving people do the exact same. And today, I want to invite you over to my podcast, Dr. Me First. It's well over 300 episodes, and each one is filled with inspiration and advice from amazing guests. So grab your wife, your mom, your sister, your best friend, and come tune in as we explore what it means to be a woman in medicine and a woman in this world. Because this podcast is a dose of everything that I needed when I was burned out, exhausted, and ready to quit it all. At the end of the day, I do this to help you feel more connected to yourself and to connect with others. I love to end my show with a kick of encouragement, so here's my favorite tagline. Your life, your calling, your pulse matters. See you over at Dr. Me First.
0: Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, the Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. About 42% of physicians report feeling burned out And half of all doctors are making active plans to leave the practice of medicine. Unfortunately, some doctors do turn to drugs and alcohol to cope with the stressors of medicine, which may result in the loss of their professional licenses. Today, we are talking with Dr. Daniel Hockman, a psychiatrist and the creator of an online professional recovery program to discuss physician well being. Dr. Hockman, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks a lot for having me, Rebecca.
0: Daniel, can you start us out by talking about your background as a psychiatrist and what drew you towards the treatment of addiction and substance abuse?
2: I had gone into medicine, sure, I was going to be an ER doc. So that was kind of the best fit for my personality at the time. But I'm, I'm a very sort of deep and analytical thinker and got frustrated wanting to figure out why people were doing what they were doing. And so the story went on that way, and I became a psychiatrist. You know, I fell into a lot of work with addiction because I I don't necessarily have the same story that I'd say most do outside or inside medicine that end up treating addiction. I don't have like a a deep, dark past of, you know, my own long battle personally. Like a lot of people, I I have plenty of friends and a couple of close family members where it's affected a lot of things. And um, so a lot of experience right around it. But yeah, so, you know, that, that had some influence on guiding me towards it. But I find addiction really captures a lot of what we get so confused about around, like, why do people behave certain ways and do what we do, which is kind of at the heart of, of my practice. So, you know, like if you're depressed, well, why don't you do things that make you happy then? Or why can't you just forget about things that bother you? Or, you know, why, why can't you address your fears? You know, it's, it, it's very strange when you start to think more about it and addiction captures a lot of that so it's something that fascinates me and and then i've had you know the joy of working with people and find that it's one of the most unmedical unscientific areas it's it's just like beyond the it's it's very siloed outside of medicine as we know so so that has drawn me to it you know because it's it's been very helpful for people around me to help bring some science to the field
0: now Daniel, do you specialize in the treatment of physicians or is that also a part of your practice?
2: I do see a lot of physicians, but it's not something, you know, that that I try to make, you know, a large part of my practice or anything. I see all kinds of people.
0: Yeah. Well, can you tell us about some of the special needs that you see in physicians and I've read the statistics and what I've seen is that Doctors are pretty much right on average with the general population for issues with substance abuse. It's about like 10 to 15% of physicians have trouble with drugs and alcohol. But is there anything particular to physician practice that might make us more susceptible to addiction issues?
2: Yeah. The thing that makes us most prone really is that we're very high achievers. So, you know, you you have certain traits and characteristics. Of course, just being kind of type A, if we're being kind of just Layperson, sort of, of words and definitions here, we are very prone in that way. And, you know, I think maybe what you saw there is generous to physicians. We, we often have uh, very high rates of addiction and substance use. So, in general, as a whole, you know, class of physicians, we are at much higher risk of opiate abuse. Alcoholism tends to be more specific to the specialty and things like that. So, the highest rate of any addiction uh, of, of any field in medicine are female surgeons. Female surgeons are the highest risk. Anesthesiologists are, are higher. So a lot of the, the specialties tend to be higher. Family medicine tends to be lower. So it depends on the specialty, but if you follow some of those things out, they do point towards the association, not of course being because anesthesia or surgery necessarily, you know, it, yes, the you know, surgery can be very high stress, But in the research that I've done around this, and this includes researching around executives, different kinds of high stress environments, it's not necessarily the stressful environment that is causing addiction. It's that people tend to seek out high stress fields when they have a lot of the precursors that are the setup for addiction.
3: What are the precursors? That's what I was going to be asking.
2: Well, in a nutshell, an upbringing that is focused on results and achievements, it might also include a lot of criticism, things like that. It could be outright abuse and trauma. So, you know, I do see physicians that have had terrible childhoods. The public, I think, thinks that we had, you know, all these like amazing privileged upbringings and, you know, we know (laughs) you study alongside people and that's just not the case. Yeah, you've got your, your occasional just run of the mill, like I went, you know, a great childhood, great grades, great, you know, life story. And it, it all worked out well. But, um, you know, we know that that's, you know, we're, we're just regular people. A lot of us have gone through, you know, traumas, abuse, losses, you know, real hardships. And so a lot of those things coalesce then. The simplest way to put it is, you know, when life is not fun growing up, that's the simplest way to say that's a, that's a precursor more specifically a few of the things that develop into the traits of addiction tend to be more around really focused on those results and things so parents or an upbringing just the culture around you when it's more focused on grades than learning the actual subject or focused on prestige and what schools you're getting into stuff like that you can imagine then that it might be that someone who becomes a doctor is focused on going to good schools and stuff but what came before that was that to them grades were like everything instead of just finding science or bodies or the cells you know fascinating so people who grow up and you know go on to be doctors that are just like fascinated by biology from the beginning they have a really good natural healthy relationship to the body and health and being a doctor but for a lot of doctors that's not really how they came to it yes of course the body is very interesting i mean i think Everybody's interested in science and the body. So it's not that like a high achiever, you know, high pressure kind of doctor isn't interested in the body. So you can't let that confuse you. It's more that, well, how did you naturally come to it? And if it was, well, I wanted a high-paying job, I want to raise a family, I want to be able to retire early, I wanna you know have a prestigious job, I wanna have a good reputation as like a, a good professional all those kinds of things, they're they are fine, right? Those aren't like terrible motivations. That's, I think, what drives most people to do what they wind up doing. But that's a different relationship to work than I'm just totally fascinated with the body and I had to become a doctor. So a lot of that criticism, a lot of focus on outcomes, which could be grades, and then trauma, and then there's other subtle things as well that, that can kind of coalesce into that. But a, a high pressure, not very fun upbringing is is the short answer.
3: So what I hear you saying is people who sort of drift to medicine, yeah, you know, because they love it. They just, they're fascinated. They love it. They think it's going to be amazing versus we're raising a doctor. We're raising a this or that.
2: Right. And
3: I think that's what I hear you saying, which is interesting because I've always said fun has no place in childhood. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I may have to revise it, but I guess sure. I want to just separate out because as the pediatrician, you know, I spend a lot of time telling families that not every kid needs a trophy, right? They need yeah. positive reinforcement. I'm so glad you tried hard. I'm so glad you you worked. Um, I know it's disappointing. I love you anyway, that kind of stuff, but not that you're my little genius and you can do anything you want, make it fun, right? I, I just want to separate those two if we can.
2: You're absolutely right. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it, it is a fine line. So, you know, I was I was talking about the one end where it's really not fun and not just not fun but bad. You know, fine. the kids I'm waking dramatic. up they're like scared, right? They they're like scared that they're not gonna wear the right thing they're scared to come home and they're gonna ask how I did on my math test and or or just even subtle things like, Well, you know, how are you getting along with all your friends? And you're you're almost afraid to say not well, because then they're gonna call the other parents and or call the teacher and, you know, just so interventional and just like trying to make that kid be the best. So you don't want them growing up scared for those things. But also, yes, exactly what you're saying. I mean, that the, the whole trophy kind of culture we have is equally awful. It's just a very, it's a it's another bad thing. It's It's on the other end of it. And what that takes away psychologically is called self-efficacy. When we don't feel like, say you're on the softball team and get the trophy at the end, and you're like, well, everyone got a trophy. And that and that sounds nice, but we know, and research is really clear, the child does not develop self-efficacy, meaning that they don't get to learn, oh, wait, when I put work in and when I really pursue something and see it through, that that does something. Instead, it's just this cheapened result. And so like everyone's the same. And it's like, no, everyone's not the same. You know, and some people are better at other things. And and so we want to know, like, when we really try hard at something, that that can amount to some kind of achievements, right? So we don't want to be pressured to achieve. We want to be fostered to achieve.
0: Well, it's so interesting that you say that because right when you when you're mentioning that, I start thinking about... How doctors are feeling nowadays that with this whole trophy mentality, you know, it's as you know, it's extremely tough to get into medical school. It's very competitive. You work really hard. You finally graduate. You go through your residency. You do all of these things and you're rightfully proud because you've accomplished a lot. And then you've got other people coming in that went to an online school that had a 100% acceptance rate. And you're told, well, they're just as good as you are. And I think it is maybe part of this whole trophy mentality that everybody's the same and we're all. Just as good, and we're all on a big team. And you have yeah. to wonder how that affects morale in a physician as, as they're experiencing this, especially the young ones.
2: Absolutely, you know. I like that you point that out. It's it's a grown up version of this. We're all we're all lining up and you know playing, and, and we went through serious training camp, and then you're done, and then the other person you know went through something much quicker and let's say gets, you know, 90% of the reimbursement. So you're, let's say you get a nine out of, you know, a nine tenth as big trophy or something. So it's, it's pretty indiscernible, right? It's, it's pretty much the same trophy. So you're sitting there like, man, I went through training camp. I did the spring training. I did, you know, the summer camp, like all about the baseball and everything. Right. And then the other one just, gets to show up and you know and gets the same thing and it's 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 about self efficacy you can paint it pretty or ugly you can cast it either as well it's this beautiful thing there's room for everyone we've you know we've got more patients to see why are we trying to be competitive this isn't baseball this isn't you know just everyone can get this this privilege of treating patients but of course there's the dirty side which is you know well there's there's patients lives at risk and it's deceiving as well.
3: I think that's something that they want to, they, that especially like the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners, which I find fascinating, you're describing that mentality. And, and I'm sure there are physicians who have this mentality too, where it's a competition yeah. or it's like you said, like they're taking a piece of the pie and it's so interesting because I know Dr. Bernard and I have been labeled that way obviously following the book but it's interesting to hear you talk about this because I loved biology from the time I was 5 and uh-huh. I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I imagined everything I imagined I'm doing now every single day right like yeah. it is such an honor it is such a privilege I'm seeing third and fourth generation patients because my dad was obviously owned the practice before me so like you said I I'm never going to be replaced like there's no doubt other than me healing over dead. There's not really going to be any any way to stop me from doing this to a certain extent. So yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying about being so fulfilled because it is what I love. I, I really, I used to say, I, I like that I can pay for my house, but I would honestly do it for free because I just love it so much. And I still do after 20 years. So mm-hmm. I think that's a definite personality and like a group. It's interesting. I think I'm finding that the people like you're describing that were, they're going to be the doctor in the family, or they had this idea that being a doctor was this special, amazing high powered, prestigious thing, which unfortunately it's really not anymore. So I guess what I want to know is how, either how responsive are those people to treatment? I I imagine it's got to be hard to get to this moment after all this hard work and be like, okay, everybody gets a trophy and I'm nothing special because I'm just a doctor. And so how responsive are those kinds of patients to treatment just as a general rule?
2: It kind of depends how they come to treatment. If someone comes to the treatment and they already understand what you just said, then that treatment can go really well. Essentially that's a grief process, right? You know you're you're, you're mm-hmm. grieving like this is not what I thought it would be. And just to tie it into what we were saying, if you were going into medicine because of the sort of the lifestyle or the prestige of medicine. And remember, we're not Counting that as a bad thing. It's a very good thing. You, it's, a, it's a noble profession and you're wanting to be an esteemed person in society. Well, then you realize you get here and it's, it's not probably what you think. And so if you went into it with the relationship to the job being the job itself, rather than like you're saying, your relationship to it is, well, yeah, it's a job, or whatever, but I'm, can I see the patient, please? That's a different relationship to your work. So the people who relate to it as just the profession as long as they're understanding what they're struggling with and they enter treatment with that, it, it does amazingly. The problem is I see a lot of people struggle and only understand the part where they're burnt out. Like that's the part that's really easy to see. You're working, you're burnt out, but that's sort of like, to me, a symptom. You know, you can get burnt out for all kinds of reasons. Just like we like, you know, you can get a fever for all kinds of reasons. You can get burnt out because of home life or because of other, you know, other things going on, burnt out because you're seeing too many patients or too little pay or too little time off or whatever. Like there's, there's a lot of reasons you can get burnt out, all the charting. And that may not be a reflection of something going on, truly, you know, underlying all of the stuff that's burning you out. So, so that's what I see getting missed, you know, as far as like what you're kind of asking is, Treatments don't necessarily go well when they present, I'm I'm burnt out, I need a therapist to talk this through with. And then you're just kind of sitting there figuring out, well, how can we create more time? Or have you told them, you know, that you need more time with patients or something? Typically, we're really smart, right? You know, doctors can usually work through those things and kind of figure that out. Does it help to sometimes have a little encouragement and accountability, you know, to taking a stand for ourselves? Sure you know, that's not like wasted time, but that's not therapy. You know, that's just kind of coaching. And and I differentiate between those. I mean, can it can you, be
0: actually, can you differentiate a little more? Because I got to tell you that Naran and I talk about this all the time. We see all these physician coaches popping up all over the place. And a lot of times they're yes. not psychiatrists, they're family doctors, there's an ER doctor, all sorts of people. And I almost always see them quitting clinical practice to become a physician coach. And I'm like, so you're going to tell me how to be a better doctor, but yet you don't want to be a doctor anymore. Like I kind of see it as like, they're looking for a way out of clinical practice. And I know many of them, that's not why they do it, but I, I can't help, but think that I happen to be a big fan of psychiatry and psychology for really trying to figure out the root of issues and, and coaching is good too, you know, just to be very goal oriented, but sometimes you need someone to help you get that to that epiphany where you realize, wow, I'm a doctor maybe for the wrong reasons. And maybe I need to change the way I think about things. And that's more than just coaching that requires a, to me, a psychiatrist or a really good psychologist. Can you share your thoughts on the differences?
2: Yeah, I'll first say a very talented, experienced, naturally gifted coach might be doing the same kinds of things an amazing therapist is doing. So that said, for the most part, yeah, I mean, a coach is going to have the kinds of trainings that. A coach would have, right? It's a lot of books and seminars and retreats and whatever. We can appreciate talking about the difference between doctors and other providers. We can appreciate the difference, right? So, you know, I, I think I'm speaking to a, an audience that immediately understands the training for a psychiatrist is on a very different level than for a coach. And so, a coach would be very good if you're trying to navigate things that. Rest on logic or illogic, you know. So it's I shouldn't say illogic, the the logic side. So what am I going to try and change about the practice? What am I going to try and change about the partnership or the ownership or the contract or my home life? And I'm going to try and work out more. All my Saturdays are up. Blah blah blah. Coaches are very good at helping set boundaries and helping to kind of give a permission or accountability to things that make sense. And that's why there's logic. A psychiatrist or a very good psychologist, they're going to be more attentive to process-based things and the parts that don't necessarily make sense. So why do I keep doing this when I know that it's bad for me? Now, that's a, that's a psychiatric kind of a question. Or I know I need to do that, but I, I can't leave when I know my patients still need help. Well, yeah, you're a helper. We have to look at why, can, you know you need to set boundaries. You know you need to leave work and get home to your family. Why aren't you doing that? That's a psychiatric question. And it might not be even that it's like you have full-on major depression or you know, anxiety. It's just that requires a little more depth of work that's going to really look at things about your childhood, things about you know, these processes that were programmed very early on and your relationship to people to things to like we were saying with work uh, why do you need to help people uh, is it what's the idea there where are you running from those are more in the space of true therapy
3: I'm glad you brought up boundaries because i i think it's such an important topic for probably physicians and almost anybody who works in healthcare I find, and and again, this is just my limited experience, that a lot of the physicians who either get in trouble or have problems or end up with substance abuse generally, and again, this is my limited experience, but generally there is this boundary problem Mm. and and it's not always the same kind of problem. So can you comment on that at all and how a psychiatrist helps people with their boundaries?
2: Yeah. Boundaries in the way you're talking about are are usually going to be because you're pushing too hard. So, and there's different types. We could maybe name just a few kinds of- Well, or
3: patients pushing too hard. What I find sometimes is patients, either physicians will cross this line or patients will. And now we're even finding, you know, nurse practitioners, PAs, everyone can be guilty of forming a too close of a relationship or getting involved sexually or whatever it is, crossing those boundaries of what I would call doctor patient or uh, something along those lines.
2: Okay, so if we're narrowing into that kind of breach and and now, you know, you're intimate or or just making advances or something with a patient. I don't just view that as, oh wow, there's this instant chemistry. I mean, maybe there is. I mean, we're we're humans, so there can there can be chemistry, but we're also humans and you know, not primitive animals. And so we we usually want to see past, you know, just some instinctual idea. So so yeah, you know, I, I view that as a as a thing to tend to, not just, oh, wow, that's a nice romantic connection. Whether married or not, I would still treat it. I mean, there are different scenarios, of course, but I would still treat that as a, a real issue. And there's a lot of paths that can lead to that. One of the most common for a doctor to do that would be that it might be revealing that that doctor is very driven to to be well-received and well-liked. And so... In a in a weird way, then yes, it's taking advantage of a prestigious position. So there is that dynamic. You're really an authority, and you're someone that person is looking up to, and so you have answers. You're you're the person that might be filling in what that person's always been seeking, right? So it's usually not just one way. Usually, they can kind of smell when that patient is all too susceptible, very smitten with someone with power. Who's you know willing to give them attention too, and so so when someone can give in very easily to that, that would be revealing of something you'd want to discover. You know why you needed that. For me, you know I don't make people feel stupid or punish people for that. Instead, you want to help them in a way that doesn't involve shame. Try to discover why did I need that kind of attention. Why did I need to confirm that I could get that person? There's usually holes in that person's psyche. They're their gaps growing up, you know, where they weren't getting something.
0: I think you touch on such an important point, which is that we are human, we are not superhuman, And we kind of have this idea as physicians, a lot of times that we have to be perfect. And if we're not perfect, then we're no good at all. I have the belief that every physician pretty much should have a psychiatrist or a psychologist, because most of us have these issues, and it's not easy to take care of patients. And I've learned so much from working with both psychologists and psychiatrists, all these tips that have helped me to understand myself better and to help my patients better. But there's a big stigma, as you know, and especially for physicians, many fear licensing issues. So what suggestions do you have for doctors so that they can get help ideally before they get into trouble? But of course, if they're getting into any trouble, they need to get it right away.
2: Yeah. You know, we work so hard to get our degrees and keep our license shared. always for doctors I say, you know, just Get on it, you know don't don't wait. If it's like the boundary issues you're talking about, if it's substances and drinking, of course, then that's riskier. Please go even faster in to try and figure that out. If it's softer things, that's when people usually do take too long or never go get help. But whether you do have something that that you're really worried is going to become you know a licensing issue, like a board review. Or not, right? And it's just that you're you're getting burnt out, and life is just getting increasingly hard. Remember, physicians have huge rates of suicide, so we we want to get ahead of that. That that's what I hope for anyone in our field. It's a it's a tough job, especially now with all the charting, and then we're getting squeezed from every direction. So whether you have like a troubled childhood, or you were doing fine and now just getting squeezed and Corporate medicine, just get in sooner than later. And you know, I, I liken good therapy to like physical therapy. I entered physical therapy because I had a bad hip. At this point now, I'm just enjoying always figuring out new things to do for my body that have nothing to do with my hip. And so that's what I hope for people: is you don't just wait and go in for the hip. Don't wait and go in for depression or someone caught you driving drunk go in just because you want to make life better. And that's, that then is bringing some joy to it. It's so much more fun to sit down in therapy and figure out like, (laughs) my mom did this, my dad did this. And why am I different than my brother? And why, oh gosh, I'm doing that with my kids. And why don't I do anything I like anymore? Like, it's fun to figure that stuff out. It it is,
0: yeah, when you have those epiphanal moments, like you're like, Oh, and then you can actually make changes in your life. And it's something you just never saw before, but with someone that can help you see these things because they're insightful and they were trained as psychiatrists are trained very specially to be able to do that. Now, what about doctors that are worried about, will it come back to haunt them if they see a psychiatrist or is it, it would do you think that we would just be able to say, well, no, I'm just going, I'm not, I don't have a psychiatric diagnosis. I'm just going because I want some tools and I want to learn how to be the best doctor I can be.
2: Yeah. If you want to be really safe, what shouldn't ever really be a, a legal concern or, you know, opening yourself up to some kind of liability there is to seek treatment out, out of pocket. So, you know, not going through insurance. Once it's through insurance, it's recorded, right? And we all know that's maybe, maybe not ever really safe from anybody else being able to discover. So if you can go in sooner, get treatment that is out of pocket and that doesn't require then any diagnostic codes or anything like that, then it's off the radar, so to speak. And and it also allows you then, if you're ever questioned, you know, on a renewal or a board review or anything, like, did you ever need treatment for something that was impairing your practice? You can say no, if it's because you were trying to figure yourself out. That might be hard to answer. And you could get nailed one day if it's if it's because you were driving drunk and you were court ordered for it or something. So going in sooner, keeping it fun, and and if you've got the finances to doing it, you know, out of pocket. So it's not getting run through insurance. That's safe, right? I mean, you, and then you can honestly answer that question that you were never getting treated for anything that where you were impaired in your practice.
0: And I mean, to be honest, psychiatry and psychology is not phenomenally expensive. I mean, yes, you can find very expensive people, but you can find very reasonably priced cash prices. Also, a lot of medical societies like mine, we have free uh, that's paid for for our members psychology sessions. There is a free confidential psychiatry physician support line, which we'll put up in the the notes. And Daniel, one of the things you've done is you've actually created an online recovery program. Is that something that physicians that could be used that they wouldn't have to worry about being discovered?
2: Yeah, a lot of physicians have found that very useful for that reason. What the program does is walk you through all the things that you'd want to do to, to do the real depth of the work to deal with it. It's, it's not just superficial around, you know, don't drink or don't do drugs. It's, it's going to help people, you know, discover a lot. And the physicians really like that because they get to go through that deep work without, it's a, you know, technically it's a course or product, right? It's not, it's, it is absolutely not a medical treatment and I like that it's not, I'm not trying to call it treatment or reach that stature. I, it's a, it's just something someone can go find and do. And, and so that, yeah, they're, they're not liable at all for that. That exposes them. There there's, there's no trail or connection to their medical care with it. And, well, and I like it that way. Well, I
0: definitely include that link in the show notes. Daniel, it's been so great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare*. It's available at amazon.com and at Barnes & Noble. We encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. And if you're a physician, we'd love for you to join us at physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Before we end, don't forget to go hang out with my friend, Dr. Erin Wiseman, over at her podcast, Dr. Me First, on your favorite podcast app, or learn more about how to connect with the Queen of Sass by heading over to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash Dr. Me First. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.